This podcast is sponsored by Pragma Lawyers. All the latest business news from WA. Mark my words, your weekly news briefing with Mark Pownall and Mark Byer. Welcome to Mark My Words. I'm Mark Pownall and I'm joined by Mark Byer. Welcome, Mark. Good to be here. Coming up in this podcast, planning reforms, Madeleine King and the Federal Cabinet's visit, venture capital boost, mineral resources, results wrap, Eurovision and what's coming up in next week's magazine. So first up, Mark, there's been a bit of action in the world of planning. Um, That would be an understatement. Um, Some major changes announced this week by the Premier, Mark McGowan, and Planning Minister, Rita Safiotti, um, along with Lands Minister, uh, John Kerry. The three of them attended a Property Council function during the week uh, to announce the next quite sweeping wave of reforms, all focused on uh, getting more development underway, particularly infill, high-rise, medium-rise developments in the established suburbs. Yep. So a few key changes that we can run through. Uh, Firstly, the State Development Assessment Unit. So this was something that was set up by the government during COVID, initially talked about as a temporary measure to accelerate approvals for large uh, projects yep. in keep the, the city. Con- keep the economy going yep. whilst we're in this situation of pandemic lockdown and potentially catastrophic economic times. So, of course, we've moved past all that, <laughs> um, but the government has decided that this is a good way to go. Um, it all operates through the WA Planning Commission rather than the traditional pathway of going through local councils to get approvals for these projects. Um, but so there was already sort of a structure. This just became a... Because you already had DAPs kind of overriding councils. This kind of just is a bit more sweeping and a bit more global, isn't it? Well, DAPs will still have a role for lo- for elected councillors. Right. Know, each DAP development assessment panel um, has three experts and two people from a local council representation. Yep. Uh, whereas this one doesn't have any direct representation from local councils. Got it. Uh, it's now become a permanent thing. Um, you know, this has been foreshadowed by Rita Safiotti in particular. Uh, amongst the other changes, um, basically any project above $20 million, the developer can nominate to go through this pathway rather than the, rather than the traditional approvals. And they've also put in place a 120-day turnaround time. So they're saying, okay, 120 days, make a decision one way or the other. Right, so four months, you'll know. Yep. And then the other one with the DAPs, the Development Assessment Panels. So, in fact, we started off with nine DAPs around Perth. That's already been reduced down to five. Now it's going down to three. Um, Again, this had been foreshadowed, but um, the details are now available. And the experts that will go on these panels, the government has... Uh, said that they want to get a group of people who are permanently in those roles. You know, at the moment, people are co-opted from their day job. Um, now they're going to get some experts in there full time. And again, they've also widened the type of projects that can go through this pathway. Uh, so basically, anything worth more than two million dollars. Um, and also, there was previously a cap was dwellings with um, or developments with more than ten dwellings could go through the DAP. Anything less than that previously had to go through the local council. Now it's anything north of $2 million right. uh, with multiple dwellings. 
Which is pretty much all of them, isn't it? I mean, you'd be hard-pressed to be doing too much south of $2 million. Yeah, pretty much anything beyond a standard you know, single dwelling yeah. uh, can go through this pathway. Um, layered on top of that, uh, the Premier announced $80 million um, to subsidise headworks for uh, multi-storey developments, so to help with developers with things like their... Um, the power and water utilities and so on. And then thirdly, uh, Rita Safiotti the next morning announced the new guidelines for medium density developments. She's spoken a number of times about how much she dislikes the idea of knocking over the old house and putting in the triplex mm-hmm. or the or the quad, quadruplex, is that a term? Yeah, I'm not sure. Now you get three or four units mm. squeezed into a suburban block and in a lot of those suburbs, you know, like a Nolamara or a Yokine or a Jundana, Como, you know, it's just block after block after block, all these little villas squeezed in. What it means, there's the, the tree canopy disappears. Uh, you get more um, traffic in those areas. Um, and then there's very, very little sort of outdoor space. So the government's put in place a bunch of guidelines to try and improve the quality of what happens. And that, again, ties in with this broader theme. Instead of that piecemeal infill happening in suburban streets, they'd much rather see um, multi-storey developments happening On around major, activity hubs. Yeah, major, major hubs and major roads. Yeah, next to the shopping centre, Near next to major roads. Yeah. Yep. So, look, all in all, um, a quite a significant package of changes. And not surprisingly... A lot of local councils are concerned about this because, mm. I mean, it's, it's taking away to an even greater extent the control that they previously had. So, so what are we, what's been the, the view on how things have gone since those COVID changes? You know, has it progressed development at a great, at an enormous pace that's been good for business? And has, it, has there been a lot of contentious things that have annoyed uh, councils? Well, look, uh, Reda Safiotti has quoted numbers. I think it's about $2.3 billion as the value of projects that have gone through the State Development Assessment Unit. So she's sort of saying that's a big tick for being pro-development. But nonetheless, there are quite a few projects that are going through either the SDAU or the DAPs. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's not simply, you don't simply put it up and get a tick. You know, projects do get rejected. And, you know, one of the notable ones is the development that Adrian Finney has been advocating down at Smith's Beach, down south. So that's going through the SDAU process. And he has, you know, in response to the criticism, he said, look, it's not a a quick pathway. We still need to do a lot of work here. And there's a a very formal process we've got to go through and it's still subject to close scrutiny. Mm. Um, So I think that that debate will continue about whether the balance is right. Um, But certainly... The Premier was quite blunt in some of his assessments where he talked about you get a handful of residents living in a particular area who are upset about a new development um, and as the Premier said, the local councillors go to water and they oppose what's being um, advocated. And that, I think, reflects a structural issue with the election of local councillors. You get a pretty small number of people that actually get out and vote and it's the the activists, they can actually swing who gets elected. Um, and typically, 
it's the people that feel strongly about something, who oppose developments. They're the ones who tend to be more active. Yeah. Mark, I've got a foot in both camps on this one, I think, because I look at it and go, you know, some of those activists are neighbours and feel their property values are being affected. And some people, of course, get an increase in property value because they can, you know, sell a property and it can be uh, more dense and density, you know, land that has density is often more valuable, but the people who don't have the density right next door then, you know, have overshadowing and all that sort of stuff going on. So I'm very respectful of the fact that people buy into an area and then find it changes and they get upset about that and they lose value on their property and that's a big thing. On the flip side... I think there's also the anti-everything brigade out there and uh, I think Rita, Sophie, Rita Safiotti said in, in one thing I heard, she said, which I thought was a very point, good point, uh, the same people who, don't, who seem to oppose infill are also opposing sprawl. So, you know, you just... Yeah. And I think the, a lot of the infill issue is a NIMBY issue but it, then you get those people, the roving activists who just don't want anything to happen at all. Anyway... Yeah. And I guess one more point on this. I think it's important to point out that local councils still have a role in defining the planning scheme for their area. And that gives the the guidelines or the framework that each DAP is meant to use when they assess specific proposals. I think what a lot of people get frustrated by is when there's an agreed planning scheme put in place and then exceptions are given for developers and that leaves a lot of people scratching their heads and saying well what was the point of the planning scheme if all these exemptions are given yeah so where that does happen i think the onus is to very clearly articulate why that exemption or exception was warranted yeah and of course exemptions then you know if you do something if you get an exemption to do something on land that otherwise you weren't allowed to that is just a great big profit for somebody for, you know, getting a decision that no one else got. And that's where it gets also a little bit contentious. Now, Mark, there's been a couple of, uh, you know, good examples in the news lately of, you know, quite significant developments around this. So let, let's start, well, there's you can go through both of them, but the Chellingworth side at Netherlands is a pretty good example. Oh, look, this is an absolutely classic example here. So this is the, the Chellingworth um, car yard or showroom opposite the Windsor Cinema on Stirling Highway in Netherlands. And look, the City of Netherlands has been front and centre of this whole debate because mm. in the scheme of things, they've tended to be uh, more anti-develop- anti-development than most other local councils. And for a good 20 years or so, I mean, yeah. at least. And, and with a highway running through it that they don't want any development on either. So this is one of those, it's a prime site you know, on a major highway, in a little commercial hub there. And yet the developer has come forward with what is a very large multi-storey, 20-odd storeys, three towers, lots of apartments. Looks a bit like an Adelaide Terrace office building (laughs) at first glance. But this is interesting because it hasn't been waved through. In fact, when it's gone up before the DAP, it's actually been knocked back. So the developer has been forced to go back, refine their proposal in terms of height, in terms of design, in terms of the the ground level experience. And so a week or so ago, they came back with a revised proposal, which will now get assessed. So look... Uh, How high is the revised proposal? Look, it's still 
20 odd stories. Um, I can't recall the exact amount. So look, it's still tall, it's still large, um, but it's a, a refinement on what they had previously. Uh, now, the, re- the reason I ask that is because I often watch these things and what seems to be the, pro- the, the process is people put something in. I think of the one in Subiaco, Blackburn one, put in at X level and then they come back with a higher one and a higher one. You think the people who've delayed this end up with a bigger building than when they started because, of course, the, the developer often needs to make it bigger to cover the costs of the delay of getting it done. Anyway. Yep, yep. And look, well, look, the Blackburn one at uh, the bottom of uh, Rockaby Road near yeah. the Subi train station, just about complete. Um, personally, I think it looks fantastic. Um, so there's that whole question about quality of design, yep. um, the aesthetic appeal of it. You know, it's large, it's tall, um, but it's I think it's not it, that noticeable from street level. In that sense, it's not you know overwhelming, is it? Yeah, that's an important point. The street level experience can be quite different from, and then behind the street level, the facade is this tall tower behind. But yeah, look, Chellingworth, um, lots of iterations there, and I think a good example of um, how the developers don't get it all their own way. Mm. Um, And look, another development proposal that was put forward this week, um, quite different, um, but really interesting. So GDI Property Group, um, ASX company, they've got several... um, CBD office towers in their portfolio. Last year they bought a couple of multi-storey car parks in the city and they've now come forward with a really quite fascinating proposal to convert one of those, I think it's a six-level car park in Pier Street, into apartments. Mm. Now I've never come across that happening, certainly not in Perth, apparently it's happened elsewhere. And then on top of that there's going to be um, a 12-storey office building. Right. so, a, so the car park disappears. Um, well, that that use of the la- of the building Sorry, yeah. disappears. So it's not like there's a car park for the residents, and then they build a residential property on top, and then and then offices. It's just the car parks disappear. The, 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 yeah, they're keeping I think what 130 car bays, right? Mostly for the residents, um, but then there's going to be five to six levels of residential, then 12 levels of um, office uh, uh, building above that. So, like everything else, this will have to go through the assessment process. Um, But the thing that stood out to me was the energy efficiency of doing it this way. You think about demolishing a six-storey concrete structure Mm. and then rebuilding something from scratch. Um, Very energy inefficient, creates lots of waste and so on. So they're, in fact, then going to use timber and steel... um, and lots of polished concrete, mm. um, which, of course, can be a big selling point for many apartments. <laughs> yes. They've got lots of concrete to yeah. work with. Um, is it, you know, sloping at five degrees, though, or whatever it is? <laughs> that <you need? laughs> That'll be interesting to see how they handle that. But, look, they call it adaptive reuse, and I thought it's a, it's a really interesting idea. Uh, same company, incidentally, that is in the middle of just about to complete, um, I think it's about a 20-storey office building, in the city, a lot of people probably don't notice it because it's tucked in between Brookfield Place and Westralia Square. So you can't actually see it from the terrace. Um, but it's quite a substantial office building with timber as a core, timber and steel, yeah. a, as opposed to concrete. Yeah. So interesting to see um, a company that's doing some innovative things in that construction space. And GDI talks about the fact 
that um, Steve Gillard, their managing director, said investors are putting a big premium on that. So if they say we've got green office buildings, they're going to attract a lot more money from the institutional investors. Hmm. Well, as long as they've got a good termite treatment, pretty happy. Uh, Well, let's move on, Mark. Um, Now, we had resources in Northern Australia Minister Madeleine King uh, at breakfast this week, 600 guests. Uh, What did you think of her comments? Yeah, look, it was broad-ranging. She's got a big portfolio. Um, And, of course, this came the day after um, Anthony Albanese, the Prime Minister, had hosted Federal Cabinet in Port Hedland. Um, And I did note one of the questions you put to Madeleine King was, uh, was that the first time a lot of your Cabinet colleagues have seen a mine? (laughs) A resources project, I think it was, but she was... was, Deflected that fairly well, I think. Oh, yes, yes, yes. Many of them have seen a resources project because, you know, she's quite right. There's, they're everywhere, really. But she did say most of them would never have seen the scale of what goes on up in the northwest. Yep. And, and she was quite right when she said, you've really got to see it to understand the scale of it. You know, having been to Port Hedland myself mm. um, and done that harbour tour where you go out on the boat and you sort of trundle around and they pick up sailors as they're going along. Um, and you just see the scale of it. Um, it's really quite phenomenal, yeah. just the, the huge volumes of material that go through there. Um, but look, one of the things that she spoke about was the future of hydrogen. You know, there's been a, a big talking point over the past year, lots of project proponents out there. The US and many other countries around the world are seeing the same opportunity. So it's a very competitive space. And Joe Biden, the US president, one of his sort of signature uh, pieces of legislation, it's called the Inflation Reduction Act, which is a bit misleading in a way, um, mm. but it's really a trillion dollars, T, trillion dollars towards green energy investments, which are all designed to, I guess, what, achieve energy security and bring down costs. Right. Um, hence the inflation reduction bit. Right. Because the uh, price of oil is a big problem for them. Yes, yes. Uh, so that's really com- that's you know a huge taxpayer subsidy in the US. Um, you know, land of free markets, but they seem to like their subsidies as well. But I mean, it's funny because it's a win-win. Uh, sorry, it's it's a potential win-lose for us there, isn't it? Because another element of that inflation uh, reduction policy uh, is to invest in critical minerals, which they don't have a heap of. And we do. And so they're investing more in processing over there of critical minerals. And also some of that funding gets, you know, brings on mining and processing in this state that has previously lacked because China's dominated that field, right? Yeah. And, but then the, the big question there is, okay, how far up the value chain do we go? Yeah. So certainly there's the opportunity that we can dig the minerals out of the ground, the lithium, the nickel, the graphite, etc., cetera, um, and the rare earths. We've already seen some substantial investment here in downstream processing. And one of the other topics that you raised with the Minister was, well, could we go as far as manufacturing batteries? Uh, you know, as you say, we've got the lithium, the graphite, the nickel, everything else. Mm. Uh, we've got some lithium refineries, which is step one down that sort of value-adding chain. Her, I think her suggestion was, OK, you go another step further to produce the, the anodes and the cathodes. But whether we go as far as manufacturing the batteries, she seemed to suggest that made more sense for places like Japan and South Korea, 
where it's close to the end user, you yeah. know, the automotive manufacturers, etc. Yeah, and look, I, I mean, I think her argument there was that batteries are heavy and therefore shipping heavy things is kind of, you know, not necessarily most efficient. I mean, it's kind of ironic given we don't make steel here, but we ship iron ore, which is, you know, iron ore is obviously 60% <laughs> iron and yet, you know, so 40% of what we ship in tons of it is uh, millions of tons of it is is just waste product. Um, she so I thought I was just sort of thinking mm, that's not really a, a, an awesome point. And there are battery uses that aren't next to you know they're not just cars. There's all sorts of battery uses that we could fit into. Um, Mark, I just although one other thing which she didn't say, which I think is worth noting, which someone did raise this with me quite recently. But I believe, well, this is what's claimed. Batteries have a bit of a half-life. They don't, they don't, once you make a battery, they don't last that long. You know, you really got to get them in the vehicle or in getting, get them used as soon as possible. And then they, they, you know, they're, they obviously deteriorate with usage as well, but they deteriorate even when they're not being used. So they're not like a can of fruit that can sit on a shelf for, you know, five years or whatever and still come out just as it was. And so that's one of the arguments for for doing the cathodes, et cetera, here and then finishing the batteries closer to car manufacturers and other manufacturing units because they it's more just-in-time production. I don't know, you know. You can ship things within a pretty quick time frame, uh, I think. But, you know, there's an argument that I, I hadn't heard before, throwing it out there. Not sure I necessarily 100% agree with it, but it's something to think about. Um, and anything else from that? We also had, uh, I mean, Anthony Albanese was in Kalgoorlie. So there was a lot of regional stuff. Uh, any any further yeah. news around that? Yeah, well, look, I suppose a lot of that, the politics of it, I guess, is around um, social issues in these remote communities. I mean, that's sort of a, a huge concern um, in many places. Yeah. Um, so that's something that the government is grappling with. And, and, we, and we know the opposition leader, Peter Dutton, was also in the goldfields at the same time playing up the... Uh, the issue around uh, alcohol abuse, etc. Yep, up, up in Leonora and places like that. Yep. Um, so that's sort of a tough one to deal with. Um, I guess sort of from a business perspective, um, there were announcements about more money being thrown at ports up in the Pilbara to facilitate growth in trade up there, um, including big upgrades in Port Hedland, which are already underway um, and foreshadowing more to come. And then I suppose the last one too was you talked about the debate over energy policy and because I guess a lot of people in business are concerned about the current federal government becoming interventionist and, and sort of pro-regulation and disrupting yep. the market. And yet on the other side, you've got the Greens who are sort of pushing Labor to go even harder on some of the reforms that they're debating at the moment. Mm. Um, and on that front, you know, the Minister, I think, was very clear in, in reaffirming that view that the government does not want to go down the path that the Greens are proposing. Basically, the Greens are saying no more oil and gas projects. Um, at one point, the minister said, well, if you want these things like the critical minerals and the rare earths and you want to be able to process them, well, you need energy for that. Mm. That requires gas. Now, you can't have one without the other. Yeah, and I thought the one kind of major political comment in there or you know, comment about the politics that she made was around that and that when we talked about that, she said, well, the latest in Canberra is the Greens are not making that an ultimatum. So to date, we've been thinking they might again derail 
a Labor government's carbon initiatives, but it sounds like they're a little bit more... Uh, they're stepping back from the brink on that one. Anyway. Um, now, Mark, uh, venture capital funding has been something of a missing link in WA's startup ecosystem. Uh, the state government is trying to help fix that. Yeah, look, interesting announcement during the week from Stephen Dawson as Innovation Minister. Uh, government has set aside, look, it's not a huge amount of money, but $100,000 a year for the next three years to three different venture capital groups that are in the process of raising money from investors. So um, I guess it's sort of a handy bit of uh, money from government to help kickstart this process. But I thought even more significant was the amount of money that these funds are looking to raise. So some of the key people involved, um, like Derek Gerard, um, been very active in that startup space um, with his outfit Purpose Ventures. Uh, Charlie Caruso, um, she's been quite active as an angel investor, looking to set up Quokka Capital. And then Glenn Butcher, another really interesting story, you know, someone who's achieved a lot internationally, come back to hometown Perth and in the process of setting up Fund WA. Yeah, look, and, you know, a really interesting group of people uh, with a lot, you know, a lot of experience around this and on the ground in WA. And that's been the issue, you know, that because founders don't just want money. Money's helpful, but they want, they kind of want activist investors who are there taking them on the ride. And, though, and, and I mean, you and I, we can invest in startups, but we don't necessarily have a lot to offer in how you get from A to B in that commercialisation space. Uh, whereas all three of these groups do have a lot of that to offer. Um, now, you, as you stated, the government has given them each 100 grand a year for three years in order to just help get them started and provide operational funding, really. So it's not investment funding, it's actually working capital in a sense. Um, they're all at different phases and it's, it's, it's really, it's quite an opaque kind of uh, area. I mean, the announcement was only just made during the week and before that it was hard. I was actually, I was hearing plenty about each of them and trying to get bits and pieces out. You're never quite sure. So uh, I think uh, Purpose Ventures sounds like it's the most progressed. It's got a target of plus 30 million um, and that's the minimum that they can actually have from the way they're structured. So, uh, and I understand that they've got commitments already above that. And they could be, I think it could get up as big as 60 million if they got it right. Um, so, you know, adding these up, we're talking about 150 million plus, you know, poss possible, which is a lot of money to go into startups uh, in, in, in predominantly in WA, not necessarily exclusively. Um, and, you know, you mentioned Derek's got a great background. He's been doing quite a lot running or been involved with as a fund manager for Better Labs, which is basically RAC has funded that. Um, then you've got uh, Glenn Butcher. He comes from that more international space and come back here. He's got a plan for... F he wants to raise $50 million, but it's over three years. And, and and he's worked at, think, what, Atlassian, yeah, Amazon? Absolutely. So some big players? Yeah, and been, you know, sort of, a, you know, a, a key player in some in some uh, big divisional or big things they've done um, and from, you know, earlier days too. Uh, and he's also been in a, in a, a been involved with a broader global um, venture capital group. Um, and then uh, Charlie Caruso, as you say, I, I think their aim is around 25 million. Um, she's got, she's more of an investor side. She did have her own ventures, but 
I don't think there's anything that um, stands out as a name that you'd know. Um, but Quokka Capital's actually been up and running for quite some time. It's just that they're going to launch a fund associated with that group. Um, so all very different too. They're, they're all planning kind of, they've all got a different message. They're all planning probably slightly different parts of the investment, you know, phase. And they're all claiming to be very collaborative. So they're all talking to each other. They're all, uh, you know, as one of them said, no one wants to be the only one in these things. It's much better to get everybody involved, share the load and spread the money and spread the expertise. So I think it's a, it's a very positive development and uh, we'll watch with interest as, uh, as it unfolds. Um, now, Mark, uh, Mineral Resources plans to spend a billion dollars in China in two lithium refineries. Yep. So, look, big news from Chris Ellison during the week. Uh, now, Mineral Resources, diversified company. They're a big contractor. They've got iron ore mines, but most notably they've got lithium mines, particularly up at Wajina. Uh, they've also got a joint venture with the US company Albemarle, so during the week, they announced a restructure of that joint venture. And the most interesting bit was where the, well, the spodumene, which then gets converted into lithium, where that processing happens. Uh, Chris Ellison has talked a lot about building a refinery up in the Pilbara to take the ore from Wajina um, or other ore and, and process it. And he's assured us that he's still working on that. They're still doing studies on building a refinery up in the Pilbara. Uh, but in the meantime, uh, they've agreed to buy a 50% stake in two refineries being built in China by Albemarle. Mm. So that gives an opportunity for Minres to uh, move up the value chain. So um, instead of just selling the spodumene uh, concentrate, uh, they'll now have that processed in Albemarle refineries, um, but then Minres will get to sell that and reap more of the value from it. So for them as a business, that's a really significant development. Um, and Mark, a little bit contrarian to what we've been talking about, which is that we don't want to be investing in China. We want to develop these industries ourselves here and or in other Western nations so that we don't rely on China. Now, I know that mineral resources in this has a foot in each camp, but it's still intriguing to see it go in that direction. Yeah, and look, in one sense, a bit disappointing. Um, I guess if we take the long view... Uh, it, it's a an investment that will make Minres a financially stronger business and hopefully give them more capacity to develop their own refinery mm -hmm. down the track. Mm. Um, you know, as we've discussed before, we've got three lithi lithium refineries being built in WA, you know, one of which is being built by Albemarle down at Kimmerton, um, and it'd be great to see more of that happening. Yeah, absolutely. And look, Mark, uh, Minres Resources was just one of the one of a number of companies reporting results this week. Yeah, look, I just thought I'd quickly run through some of the themes that stood out um, from the profit reporting that happened over the past week. Um, firstly, looking at the lithium miners, absolutely booming. Mm. So Mineral Resources put out their results on Friday morning. Um, they had a net profit of $390 million, up, listen to this number, 1,890%. <laughs> so a very modest profit in the prior corresponding half year mm. but look volumes have gone up prices have gone up um, margins have gone up and and now reaping the reward from that and the other company that um, achieved an even more spectacular gain arguably was Pilbara Minerals now they were one of the early movers in the in the lithium industry um, they've been really focused on getting their operations up in the Pilbara um, 
up and running efficiently and now it's all happening for them. Profit $1.2 billion for the half year. The previous corresponding figure, $114 million. Yeah, I, I mean, I'm thinking they probably had a market capitalisation of $1 billion a couple of years ago at best, yep. right? Yep, <laughs> and, and now they're one of the top half dozen ASX companies out of Western Australia. Yeah, incredible. Um, and that allowed them to announce their inaugural dividend, um, 11 cents a share, which equates to about $330 million. So shareholders finally getting some uh, reward uh, for their patients. Um, and interestingly, that profit from Pilbara Minerals came despite a big increase in operating costs. Mm. So this is a theme that we've talked a lot about, um, and yet the selling price for their lithium rose even more, so their margins were still fantastic during that half year. Yeah, it's something. Um, the other sector, iron ore, we had over the past week, we've had Fortescue, BHP and Rio have all put out their results. All have reported a reduction, a significant reduction in profit for the period. Uh, the theme there, um, prices have come off a bit um, and costs have gone up. Hence, they've all had a decline in profit mm. and a cut in dividends in most cases, but still generating very solid profits. And look, and the iron ore price still something like 130 US dollars a ton, so that's pretty good. Yeah. And then look, we also had a lot of the contractors with their results. Um, Monodelphus, you know, they're a very big player in the market, and the theme they talked about: the shortage of skilled labour continues to be the most significant challenge for the company. Um, so that's, that's, that theme has not gone away by any means. But it was interesting, though, to look at companies uh, like Apodium, uh, Parenti, McMahon, all announced an upgrade to their earnings outlook. Um, so just sort of a reflection, I guess, that the, the broad strength across the resources sector um, and those contractors, not just in Western Australia, but they've got projects around the world. So it's that expertise out of Perth. Yeah. And it's gold, it's lithium, it's nickel. Um, there's a whole range of commodities, a whole range of geographies. And, and the contractors are in a good place right now. Um, so, uh, Mark, I think uh, another someone else who might be thinking about an earnings upgrade. Uh, 2021 40 Under 40 winner Daniel Estrin and his band Voyager were named Australia's entry into Eurovision. Bit of a lighter story, but, you know, the times must look good for them. <laughs> but there's a nice business news angle to this one, because uh, it was only two years ago, Daniel was a winner of our 40 Under 40 awards. And I remember him coming up to the stage to accept his award, which <laughs> I presented to him. And... Uh, he looks a bit different from the average 40 under 40 winner. Um, his hair is pretty much shaved on one side, but very long down the other side. And if you look at one of the film clips for Voyager, you'll see him swinging that hair around. So they're a, um, a synth metal band. Uh, I think they'll slot in very well in the Eurovision <laughs> context. Yeah. But I guess you know the bit that really struck me, and the reason Daniel won the 40 under 40 award, is the, his capacity to actually have two careers. So he set up um, a mental block for a moment here. He's his own law firm. So they're a specialist um, immigration law firm. That's right, yeah. Um, Estrin Saul Lawyers, I think, is the name. Sorry if I've got that wrong. Um, but, you know, quite a significant business. Um, running successfully, um, quite a few people on the team. But then in tandem with that, you know, for the past decade or more, he's had this band. He's the founder, the lead singer, 
they've toured internationally. Yeah. So it's not just like, you know, playing the occasion the pub. <laughs> playing the occasional gig down the local pub. You know, he's really serious about pursuing it as a career. Yeah. And um, he's been trying for several years to get the nod as Australia's entry in Eurovision. Um, so good on him. Mm. And, uh, you know, uh, I think it's a really good story about a, a very determined and a very enterprising person here in Perth. Well, I'm sure we'll all be following that closely. Now, Mark, let's very quickly uh, look at next our magazine out next week, preview a few stories. So firstly, Australia's oldest dairy company, Browns. Yeah, well, look, uh, well, in fact, you caught up with their chief executive, Natalie Sarich-Dayton. I did. Um, and had a chat to her about what she's doing with that business. Yeah, look, quite a, quite a good story. And uh, we talked a lot of, you know, she's... She's really got a marketing background, which is great because it is a fast-moving consumer good company uh, and it's got all sorts of fascinating brands and they're putting lots and lots of energy and effort into growing those brands and expanding it and trying to use this huge production capacity they have. But, uh, yeah, good good discussion all around that and they've got a Chinese owner, which I just have to say is the biggest cheese company in China. Cheese is not a big thing in China, but this company has almost made that category in China and they sell it like cheese on a stick, which is sweetened, uh, is how they've got so big. So kind of fascinating. I'm not sure we'll expect to see that here, but nevertheless, very innovative over there, and Browns is very innovative over here. And um, some fantastic historic photos you've yes. got in the magazine there. Yeah. Uh, chalk milk promotions from the 1980s Yep. Uh, with some glamour models. <laughs> um and a lovely old photo from McRobertson Miller Airlines. Airlines. I know, isn't that? There's a, there's a blast in the past. You and I, just old enough to remember that one. Uh, now, Mark, you've done a piece on waste and recycling. Yeah, look, it's an industry I've followed for a long time. WA, over the years, has been a pretty poor performer in terms of achieving um, good rates of recycling and reuse for waste materials. We've still got a lot of stuff goes to landfill, but there's a lot happening in that space. There's about $1.6 billion being invested at the moment in recycling projects um, and a lot more still to come. Um, so some encouraging progress, uh, but a lot more needs to be done. And then Matt McKenzie's focused on the Perth Basin gas field. Yeah, look, once again, we've spoken about this in the context of some takeover battles, uh, but he's talked about companies like Beach Energy, um, Strike Resources, um, Hancock Prospecting, and Chris Ellison's company, Mineral Resources, all looking to make some very big investments up in that area, all trying to achieve, um, I guess, adding to energy security for WA and just meeting that very strong demand for gas. So yeah. one more area, we're going to see some big investments. And finally, Liv de Klerks uh, looked at aged care. Yeah, look, I, I, I guess we think of it as a almost a charity sector, but it's a very big industry. Um, lots of substantial investments going there, new developments, there's a big property angle to it, service delivery as well. So a good wrap-up from Liv um, on who the players are there. Yeah. And the big issue being they can't get workers like everyone else. All right, Mark, thank you for that. Uh, I hope you've enjoyed this podcast and thanks for listening. The latest business news delivered daily. Subscribe and rate the show wherever you listen to your podcasts. For all the latest business news, visit businessnews.com.au. This podcast is sponsored by Pragma Lawyers.